you complete me. Shut up. Just shut up. <laughs> in one of the greatest cinematic scenes in history, Jerry Maguire, where the man is trying to win back his wife, he, he, he interrupts this book study, rudely, mind you, and tells the woman, you complete me. And he teaches us and all of America that our spouse will complete us. Is that true? Is that, is that, <laughs> no. <laughs> Sorry, John. What, what happens when we find the one? <laughs> will our puzzle be complete? Today, I want to welcome you all to the beginning of the end of marriage. That's the title of my sermon today, The Beginning of the End of Marriage. And it sounds very dire, I get that. <laughs> but stay with me. Here's how we're going to tackle this passage. Uh, I want us to see three things. I want us to see the grounds, the beginning, and the end. The grounds, the beginning, the end. The grounds, the beginning, and the end. And so the grounds or the reason for marriage. We're talking about this, and this is just absolutely wild why we're talking about this because we're in genesis which literally means the beginning of the universe right the beginning of everything the beginning of time the beginning of all that there ever is and was and we get to see what the world's supposed to be like we we get we see like every action is an act of creation Right? This is everything that happens here sets the tone or the template for the rest of the world. And so for, to me, this is so exciting. I love preaching this book because we get to see how things were meant to be. Like we get to be recapture God's intended design for the world, for mankind, for work, and now for marriage. And so to catch you up, if you're, you're just joining us here now this morning, God is writing this this sweet, sweet song with some, with some really cool rhythms and beats behind it. And he says, you know, let there be, and there was, and it was good. Let there be, and there was, and it was good. And so there's this song that's going on for a while now. And in, in, in six days of creation, we see this song. And then in chapter two, we see God retelling the whole creation story uh, in, in a very different way. We take a moment to, to just expand and to zoom in on what he's doing here on day six. And so last week we saw that, that humankind was created from the earth, right? From, from literally from the dirt. And I think this is just beautiful. We were literally handcrafted. Like nothing's handcrafted these days, but you are. Like, we don't just come up this conveyor belt stamped and all alike. No, we're all handcrafted. We are unique. We are different. Some of us are a little bit more different than others, uh, but, but all very good, right? Everything so far has been declared with this benediction, it is good. And then sneaks in verse 18. Verse 18 should feel like, er, like the record just stopped. Verse 18 says, it is not good that man should be alone. I mean, so if you're reading this, you're going, what? <laughs> How can that be? Something seems off here. How could God create perfection with stars and moons and everything all lovely and good, and yet something that he created was not good? 
The phrase here is, is low tov in, in, in the Hebrew. It's an emphatic. It is, it is bad for Adam to be alone. And so this is crazy. Like, what, is that, what does that mean that he's saying not good? Well, it's, it's much like when, when God looked at me and said, you know, it's really not good for Slim to be alone. <laughs> we need to get Kristen here stat. Like, this is bad for the world. Did, did, did you see Slim's hair before Kristen? It was bad. <laughs> it was low tone. Did you see the way that he dressed before Kristen? Like, he can't be left to himself, right? <laughs> so God said, it's bad for him to be alone. Why? Because our spouse helps us. Kristen tells me all the time, you can't wear that. And I love it. <laughs> Some of us need more help from our spouses than others. But, but actually, I think that's only part of what is happening here. I think that's only, uh, only a smidgen here. Why was something amiss? in creation. Why was something awry? It's because Adam was alone. Adam was lonely. And does that sound ridiculous to you? I think it should. Like Adam was lonely when he had God all to himself. Like Adam was incomplete when he had God talking to him one-on-one, -on -one, walking with him. That, that just seems crazy to me. I mean, this reveals that God creates us this, with this innate need for one another and not just for him, that we need one another. And so God creates Adam, and then he tasks him to, to name all of the animals. And side note, this may not need to be in the sermon, but I, I, just, I think this is fascinating. How long did it take for him to name all the animals? Do you ever think about that? Like... I don't know how many animals there were in that day. Today, there, we have about 7 million species. 7 million to name. Like, goodness. <laughs> don't you ever just wonder how that conversation happened with God? God's like, all right, Adam, you get to name all of the animals. Anything you want. Just, just go for it. And Adam, maybe he's like, uh... I don't anything. I don't. I don't know what. That, that's okay. You can be creative. Uh, I, well, I don't know what to name them exactly. Make it up. Okay. Okay. Well, here we go. There's this flying little bug that's coming over here. What do you want to name that? Uh, uh fly. I'm gonna name it fly. <laughs> well, okay. Uh, it, Adam, you you can pick anything. I'm calling it fly. <laughs> cool. Cool. All right. All right. So very literal. All right. Thanks, Adam. Uh, well, let, let's just go to another realm. Let, let's go into. Let's go into the ocean. There's all these beautiful animals swimming around in here. And look at this. We have this, this fish that's, that's like jelly-like substance. Jellyfish! <laughs> I'm calling it jellyfish. Adam, it really doesn't have to be exact. <laughs> you could go with anything. Jellyfish. <laughs> all right, all right. Well, anything else? Uh, Japanese spider crab. Oh, okay. That, where did that come from? <laughs> How did he name all of these animals with the creativity and in the time span? This is fascinating to me. Now, obviously, he named the animals that were according to their kind. And so when he named all the dogs, it was all the dogs according to their kind. So just dog. It wasn't all the specific dogs here. Um, but still, the time that it took for Adam to just go through all of the animals and to name them, Adam then began to see that there was not someone for him. And he began to feel the not good of creation. In verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. 
Adam was looking at all of these animals with all of their partners, and he had none. How many of you have felt the not good of creation? How many of us have felt that, that loneliness? A feeling like no one understands us. I have no one to open up to. There's a writer named Thomas Wolfe, and he said that the central and inevitable fact of human existence is loneliness. That seems depressing. <laughs> and so, so whether we are introverts or extroverts, whether we're married or single, standing on the stage or sitting in the cheap seats, like we all share that struggle to connect. Does that resonate? Like, why is it a thing that medical professionals identify loneliness as a chief cause for these diseases and even death? Why is it a thing that the United Kingdom has a government agency with a leader whose title is the Minister of Loneliness? Why does feeling lonely seem like the norm rather than the exception? I think for so many of us, what we see here, according to the Bible, what we're experiencing this loneliness, it's not because that there's something wrong with us, but because there's something right with us. That we experience loneliness because deep, deep down, we know that we were made for connection, that we were made for intimacy and love. And we seem to experience that in very small slivers. And so do you get that? that? I think this is wild. There is something right with us when we are feeling that loneliness. And we're saying, I am called for something better. When we feel that, we're saying, this is the grounds for something better. And this is the grounds in this passage here. And now we get to go to the beginning of marriage. God now introduces to planet Earth the, the whole concept of, of marriage. In ver back in verse 20, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. Now, that word helper, I think we need to talk about that. Uh, the word helper, the Hebrew there is, is ezer, uh, and it does not mean inferior helper. The helper is not a valet. It's not a servant. Uh, this word is predominantly used referencing God, and God is not a valet or a servant. Psalm 33, 20 says, Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield. And so the help, is come, someone coming to, to, to save, someone to come in and to rescue. If, if I asked Evan Ilizada, hey, dude, my car broke down, like every single person here has asked, he would come to you after this service and help you start your car. And in that moment, if I asked him to help me, he is not the weak one coming to help me. I am, uh, I, in that scenario, I am the weak one, and he is coming with his strength to help. And so in, in military context, that, that, that word Ezer is translated ally. Since there, there are threats to the garden that we're about to see in a couple weeks, there, there, this, that seems to be a, a very good way of translating this, that this, the woman is an ally, a military ally. And so the es emphasis is woman's essential contribution, not her inadequacy. And, and this helper, it says, is, is a suitable fit. The Hebrew word here means like opposite. Don't you love that? <laughs> that that your, you, your spouse is to be like opposite you. How many of you guys feel like your spouse is very opposite? <laughs> it's like opposite. If, if they were the same, 
same puzzle pieces, the same shape. They don't fit together. Um, they don't fit. But if they are different in certain ways, then there is a fitness. Likewise, they can't be so different <laughs> that they don't fit at, at all. Uh, that, that, and so that, that fitness is, yes, referring to biologically male and female, but that's evident here that, that marriage is between a male and female, but it's also fitted emotionally. Kristen and I fit well, right? <laughs> we're, we're very like opposite. Uh, she, she is an Enneagram 1, I'm an Enneagram 9, she is an introvert, I'm an extrovert, uh, and so we are very different, but our humor is of the same. It's right about that 8th grade level, right? <laughs> we get each other, no one else does, but we do, us and these 8th graders, right? <laughs> it, it's as the great theologian Paula Abdul said when, when studying this passage, she said, I take two steps forward, I take two steps back, but when we come together, it, it's opposites attract, right? Gonna leave that there. So Adam is done naming the exotic creatures, Mexican tree frog, velociraptor, and then he's realizing that man and his dog just isn't enough. And so then God does some anesthesia. Chidi, you're in good company here. And he's he's putting the man under, following these, these steps here in verse 21. And so the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, he took one of his ribs, closed it up its place with flesh. In verse 22, And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And so God, God puts Adam to sleep. This is the surgical sleep. He is out. So much so that the Lord does cut out a rib from, from him and makes that into a woman. Again, handcrafted. And then we get one of the best lines in verse 23, we get to see the sheer bliss of Adam's response. Verse 23, he says, this at last is bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. Like, at last, this is the groom who's, who's now watching his bride walk down the aisle. That the best moment in all the marriages. I'm saying, at last. She's glorious. This is what I've been looking for all my life. And so you, you can just think of the sheer delight that Adam has here. You have to think like how lonely he was beforehand. You have to think of, of Adam as being like castaway, deserted on an island with no one to talk to. And finally, he got, he, he, Adam sees his bride. What we're seeing here is the very first wedding ever. I mean, just to see the delight and the appreciation Adam has for his wife. Oh, it's, it's the way it's intended to be. Like in our world where, where women are consumed and abused, where women are, are devalued, they have no voice, their gifting is squashed, their intellect dismissed, but that's not here. That's not in scripture. Eve is valued. She is cherished at last. Bone of my bone, flesh of my flesh. But let's get back to the wedding here. So the big event we're talking about here is marriage. What's happening here is in, in verses 24 and 25 gives us a, a picture of what marriage is. And marriage, I would say, is three things. It is leaving, it is cleaving, and it's weaving. Say that again, leaving, cleaving, and weaving. In verse 24, a man shall leave his father and his mother. Pause there. It is essential for this first step for anything else to happen well. If you do not leave your father and mother, things do not go well. 
You know, and most of the times when people would leave, they would actually still stay in the same town. And so it's not just a physical leaving. Uh, people would stay in the same town, but that's leaving is, is a forming a new primary, primary loyalty. And so that your wife comes first, your husband comes first. And so if you're a dude and you're still talking to your mom uh, about the decisions before you talk to your wife, there's something wrong there. Likewise, if you're a woman and you're talking to your dad about maybe taking a job in another city and you haven't consulted with your husband, I think there's something wrong there because you haven't left. You, you, your loyalties are still with your parents. But this new primary loyalty extends past, past parents. It, it goes to your kids as well. I tell my kids often, you know, do you know who you're disrespecting? That's my wife. Ooh, that gets them. <laughs> they start realizing, okay, <laughs> they have something that I don't have. There is a primary loyalty there, and she comes first. Yes, she's your mother. Yes, I'm your dad, but that's my wife, and she's number one. And this should be true all the time. This should be true in our friendships, that our, that our spouse needs to be our best friend or on the way to becoming our best friend. If not, we haven't left. And so then once, once you do leave, then you can cleave. Verse 24 says, it, it says, hold fast. Hold fast means to be glued to something, to be united to someone through a covenantal binding oath or promise, and so that you are now glued or bound to them. Now, now, now we get into one of my, I don't have many pet peeves, but this is one of my pet peeves. If you really want to annoy me, <laughs> Invite me to your wedding, and when it comes time for the vows, say something like, instead of vowing, say something like, the moment I saw you, I just fell in love. <laughs> One, like that, that's, <laughs> you can't fall into love, that's dumb. Like, I, oh, I stubbed my toe. Oh, I fell into love. That's not how that works. Like, love is an action. But two, what are you vowing right now? Or maybe you're at a vow part of the ceremony and you've heard someone just list the attributes that they like about the person. Like, you're just so funny and you're brave and you're beautiful. I mean, yeah, cool. Those things need to be true that you need to be able to say that. But like wedding vows are not just stating what's true now. They are, they are binding promises of future love. Vows keep you from running out too quickly. I vow that I will cleave to you forever till death do us part. I'm glued to you. I'm committed to you in that way. You're just so beautiful. Who cares? <laughs> That's important, right? But what are you going to do when things are tough? And we then declare it publicly at a wedding so that if I'm considering leaving my spouse... I have all these people here at the wedding to hold me accountable and say, you can't do that. You vowed no matter what. And so this is the beauty of vows and of cleaving. But in creating marriage, God intends for us to leave, to cleave, and finally to weave. In verse 25, and the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. They weaved together. Of course, this is, this is referring to, to physical nudity uh, and intimacy, but you can also think of, of that, that, that no barrier of any kind being driven between Adam and Eve. They, they were intimate, and, and you go, yes, but naked? Well, that's awkward, right? 
Have you ever said, like, when I'm around them, they just make me feel naked? Like, it, it never feels good to say that. It never feels like a good thing. It always feels like you're being like, I'm exposed. I feel naked around them. Like, because this goes to our greatest fear of being exposed, of being truly seen. And one of my favorite, absolute favorite lines from a guy named Tim Keller, who's a pastor up in New York City, he says, to be loved but not known is comforting but superficial. To be known and not loved is our greatest fear. But to be fully known and fully loved, as well, it's, it's a lot like being loved by God. And so I think our greatest fear is for someone to know us so intimately, so deeply, so truly, and yet they reject us. That's why we fear. That's why we cover up. We put on all these masks because to, the, the flip side is to be fully loved and be fully known and fully accepted <laughs> with no shame. Oh, it's a picture of heaven. And, and the act of sex here is meant to be this moment where you get all three of these leaving, cleaving, and weaving all tied together. It's meant for marriage alone. And when we take sex outside of marriage, yes, we, what we do is we cheapen it. There is no leaving, there is no cleaving, there is no weaving. And so sex is this, is this good, good thing that God has ordained and created, and we need to see that. But at the same time, it is not everything. It is not ultimate. As Malcolm said before, though marriage is a pre-fall reality, it is not a heavenly reality. Because the end is better than the beginning. Right? The shadow will fade, and then we get to enjoy the reality, what everything is building towards. And this leads us to the end of marriage. We all need to realize that our marriages will end. It is till death do us part. Did you guys know that? That was what you vowed, that there is no marriage in heaven? Some of you were like, whew, I have an out. <laughs> Goodness. <laughs> Others are like, no. What's, gonna, what's it going to be like in heaven? I won't be married? That, that, that sounds frightening. Matt, Jesus tells us in Matthew 22 that there is no marriage in heaven. Why? Well, because the end of marriage, the end of it is not marriage itself. The end or the point or the purpose of marriage is to point us to a greater wedding that we all get to partake in. The sole answer to our loneliness just can't be get married. Why? Because there, there, there's a couple problems with that. One, it sets up marriage to fill that gaping hole that, of loneliness that only God can fill. Two, it conveys to our single brothers and sisters that they are incomplete or that the only way to live a full life is to be married. This is the, this is the you complete me theology, which is not... Is, is terrible. And yet, many sad hearts have come to discover that sometimes the deepest form of loneliness happens inside of marriages. And so no marriage is not a magic bullet that cures the loneliness problem. Also, if it were true that only married people can be relationally complete, then we would be forced to conclude that the, the Bible's principal teachers on marriage, Jesus and the Apostle Paul, we're both incomplete, which is absolute ludicrous 
that Jesus or Paul would be incomplete here, Paul makes it very clear. He says, if you want to get married, great. You don't want to get married, great. <laughs> Both have their values and advantages. And sadly, the church has labeled singleness as plan B. It's absolutely not plan B. That's, that, that may be the Reformation talking. That may be the American church talking, but that's not the Bible talking. Like we have a book, uh, we have a book at the back table there uh, that's titled Seven Myths About Singleness that I highly encourage you, you look at. That it, it debunks these myths like that singleness is too hard or, or you can't be happy unless married. That, that singleness means no intimacy. That's absolutely wrong. I know many singles who have great, intimate, deep friendships that I'm jealous of. They're, they're highly engaged with families in a community. And so that just cannot be true. And Christianity was the very first religion that held up singleness as this viable option for flourishing. Why? Because the Christian gospel and the hope of the resurrection de-idolizes marriage. It de-idolizes marriage. Marriage is a pointer to the end, but it's not the end itself. Like, these things are good, but they're not ultimate. The, the end of marriage is Christ himself. Paul sheds light on this, all of this, in Ephesians 5, verse 31 and 32. He's quoting our passage here of Genesis 2. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. And then in verse 32, this mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Oh, <laughs> circle that verse. Paul is saying that what is happening right here in Genesis 2, it's a mystery. It's profound, and it's a picture of Christ and the church. Oh, I mean, do you see the love and the care for humanity that's just laced in these texts? Our marriage here on earth are for the point of helping us understand the intimacy and the love for the next marriage. Every single time I do premarital counseling, I, I realize this all over again. I absolutely love doing it. When I sit down with couples, a new couple, yes, we talk about marriage. Yes, we talk about the wedding. We talk about relationships. But we primarily talk about the gospel. And I love it. Because when you sin against me, what do I do in response? When I offend you, how do you respond? Why does this work? Because marriage explains the gospel, and the gospel explains marriage. The gospel is that you are more messed up and flawed than you ever dare believe, and yet at the same time, far more loved and cared for than you ever dared hope. And marriages help us see both how sinful and flawed that we are, and yet how loved and cared for we are. Luther calls marriage the school of sanctification, the school of character. It's the fast track of sanctification. It's this picture uh, of this, the fitness of, of these two puzzles that come together. They don't ever just fit rightly. They don't just ever fit snugly. That assumes that your puzzle piece is perfect. Sometimes you start realizing when you get into marriage, I've got some rough edges. <laughs> My puzzle piece needs to be chiseled off. <laughs> and there's an ironing, sharpening iron. 
element that needs to happen here. Our spouses reveal these things to us, and it's just glorious. I think so many times we, we all just say, I just want someone to accept me just for who I am. And yes, on one level, yes. But on the other, over time, we start to realize I don't want to be the person I was five years ago. I want to be different. I want to grow. I don't want to live that way anymore. And our spouses help us do this. And I would say, even in the presence of bad marriages, even then, they help us understand the marriage. Now, some of you may be in bad marriages, and, and I'm not talking about abusive ones. I think those are in another category, and I don't want to confuse that. Many times, those relationships, we need to deconstruct what we learned from those. But set that aside. But even in, even in marriages where maybe it feels dead, where it feels cold, and you think, my spouse is killing me. Well, we literally killed our spouse. Jesus has been in the world's longest and worst marriage ever. And he continues to love us. He's the perfect spouse. He's the perfect helpmate. He is the perfect love because we are the betrayer. We're the backstabber. We're the one who doesn't listen well. We're the one who is distant and cold. But in spite of all of that, In spite of all of that, look at how Christ sees you. If, if Genesis 2 is a picture of Christ in the church, how does Christ see you? He sees you as the groom seeing the bride walking down the aisle at last. Do you get that that's how Christ sees you? At last. Just cherishing you, loving you, caring for you deeply. I mean, this is everything right here. If we can see the truth that's right there, it will change everything about our relationships. Christ vowed and glued and committed himself to us all the way through the cross and death and the resurrection. And when he sees you, he'll say, I did it all for you. I did it for you. And so is my spouse's sin worse than mine? Until we let the gospel shape us in our marriage, then the answer will always be yes. They're the problem. But if I look at the way Christ loved me and the church, then even when all I bring to the table is my own sin, and yet he loves me deeply, that changes how I love my spouse, how I see her, how I care for her and cherish her. That is an overwhelming, transforming love. And this applies to singles too. I, is this the way I see my friends? Do I just see them and all their flaws and their sin and their inadequacies? Or do I see my own and ask, how are you even friends with me? How are, don't you know me? Don't you know how I've hurt you and let you down? And when we do this, when we start to see our own sin, with the log in our eyes getting bigger and the speck in their eyes getting smaller, the love of Christ grows exponentially. Today, I, I just ask you, will you see that Jesus Christ left heaven for you? That Jesus cleaved and glued himself to you? That that's the true marriage? That's what we're all waiting for. The Bible begins with a wedding. Jesus' first miracle is at a wedding, and it ends with a wedding, your wedding. 
today, your application, see God not just as a father, not just as a benevolent being, but as your spouse. And believe he sees you as precious, as his bride, and may Christ's love and gaze be upon you, and may you truly believe it. Let me pray.